The text for the message this morning comes from Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Zephaniah chapter 1, 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. The book of Zephaniah is a short book. It's only three chapters. It contains, however, in miniature, an overview of the larger books by the prophets in the Old Testament. So our plan is to go through this book section by section over the next few weeks. And in doing so, we'll see three main themes come up again and again. Number one, we'll see the theme of God's anger against sin or his judgment. Number two, we'll see the theme of the call to repentance. And number three, God's plan to redeem a remnant. So we'll see those three themes as we go through the book of Zephaniah. God's anger against sin, the call to repentance, and God's plan to redeem a remnant. So first of all, let's set the context here. Zephaniah preached during the reign of Josiah, king of Judah. The people of God had been abandoning God for generations. So Josiah's father was Ammon and his grandfather was Manasseh. Both of those men were apostate kings. In other words, they led the people away from the true worship of the Lord and led them into the worship of idols. King Josiah, however, would seek to lead the people in a religious reformation and a return to the proper worship of God. However, even Josiah's attempts would not be enough to compel the people to fully repent and return to the Lord in order to avoid his judgment. And so, From the outset here, Zephaniah's preaching reminds us that even amid a religious revival, there is still a need for repentance. No matter how many positive things are going on around us, no matter how much positive change has happened, there is still a deep need for repentance. And there are still many, even in a community that may be moving in a good direction, there are still many who have not repented and returned to the Lord. And so Zephaniah preaches in the midst of Josiah's reform, saying you need to make sure that your repentance is complete. So Zephaniah comes on the scene here, and he brings a message from God. He was a prophet, and a prophet's job is to take a message from God and deliver it to the people. So Zephaniah's job was to tell the people, his job as a prophet was to tell the people not necessarily what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. Being a prophet was often a thankless job because the people were reluctant to heed the prophet's message. Martin Luther wrote about this. He he wrote how the prophets were hardly ever able to convince the people that God was really angry with them. 
Why not? Why couldn't the prophets convince the people that, hey, God's judgment is coming on you? And Luther said that it's because the people relied continually on the claim that they were God's people, and whoever preached that God was angry with them had to be a false prophet. So Luther is saying when these prophets came on the scene, they would preach the word, they would call the people to repent, they would say that God's judgment is coming, but the people would say, well, if they're preaching a message of judgment, then they must be a false prophet. And the same problem occurs today. We can dismiss a message that tells us that God will judge us and we need to turn away from sin because we just cannot accept the idea that God would be angry with us. The people of Judah trusted in their ethnic background. Today, people can trust in the fact that they grew up in a religious home or they go to church or most commonly that they are pretty good people and God would never be angry with their actions. So let's look at the first line of this book. Let's look at the first line in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. What follows in this book is not primarily Zephaniah's message, but God's message. The prophet was to speak God's words, not his own. This is what the Christian does today whenever he shares the gospel with others. When the Christian shares the truth about God's judgment against sin about the only remedy for that sin in Jesus and the need to repent. He's not speaking his own word, but the word of the Lord. So we will look this morning at the first part of this message from the Lord in verses 2 through 6. I encourage you to have your Bibles open. We'll be looking at 2 through 6 going through these verses. And of our three main themes, the main one in this section is God's anger against sin, God's judgment. Verses 2 through 6 can be broken down into five parts. We'll look at these five parts this morning. Number one, judgment on all the earth. Number two, judgment on God's people. Number three, judgment on idolatry. Number four, judgment on syncretism. And number five, judgment on religious indifference. So we'll look at all five of those as we go through these verses. So look at verses 2 through 3. And let me reread just these two verses. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, in literature, there is a term. The term is in medius res. It's a Latin phrase that means in the midst of things. It describes a story that begins with the main character already in the middle of things. You've seen this device in movies, right, where the opening scene is perhaps a fast car chase where the main character is already in the thick of things. Another classic example of this is from the movie Saving Private Ryan, where they're reenacting D-Day, which we remember today, June 6th, when the Allies stormed the beaches at Normandy. But in that movie, it immediately starts with the ships about to land at the beach. It it begins in medius rest, right in the thick of things. Other stories take time to build up to the action. A story that is in medius rest gets straight to it. And Zephaniah begins his short prophecy in medius rest. There's no build up to this cataclysmic judgment in his poetry. He goes straightway to the point. He goes from zero to 60 In one verse here, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Right away, Zephaniah gets straight to it. Now, Zephaniah is using the literary form of poetry to paint some very vivid word pictures. 
And he begins with this poetic reversal of the creation account. It is a striking and powerful start to his message. Leland Riken describes the opening lines like this. Zephaniah launches at once into an oracle of judgment against his own nation. The poetic images and metaphors tumble onto the page in a crescendo of energetic predictions of destruction. It is the equivalent of a horror story, a hunting down of a victim by an omnipotent judge. The point here in Zephaniah's opening line is to grab your attention immediately. He begins his message with one that was not popular in his day and is not popular today, judgment. And why start a message with judgment? Why not start with good news? I think the primary reason is that the good news of God's love and forgiveness, which we will see in Zephaniah, makes no sense without the context of sin and the danger that our sin puts us in. So if we don't understand the bad news of the coming judgment, we really won't understand the good news of God's love. You know, judgment is also not a popular message because people are already hurting. People are broken. There is pain, sin, and heartache and loss. That was the case in Zephaniah's day, and it's the case today. People want an encouraging word. People want to be encouraged. They don't want uh, more bad news. They don't want to hear a message of judgment. And this was certainly the case in Zephaniah's day. The northern kingdom had already been taken captive. There was already great turmoil and loss for God's people. God had already judged half of the nation. The people really wanted to hear some good news. They probably thought they had heard enough bad news for their lifetime, and they wanted to be encouraged. And the same happens today. I hear a lot of people who say they're turned off to the biblical message of a holy God who will judge. And they're drawn, you see them drawn to a lighter message. They're drawn to someone who will not speak about judgment, but will just speak about God's love. And it's true, their lives, just like the lives of Zephaniah's audience, may have may be filled with loss and broken families and sin. And surely these people can think, we deserve to hear a good message. We need to hear a good message, and we deserve to hear a good message. We've been through so much. Our lives are so broken. We don't want to hear about judgment. We want to hear about good things. But God knows that our problem goes much deeper than we think it does. We may think that we understand well enough about sin and the pain it brings, but we really do not. We don't understand the depths of sin. Thus, God begins his message to a broken people. Their northern neighbors already taken captive. Many of their lives are a mess. God begins his message with a stunning and sweeping statement about the extent of his judgment on all the earth. It is meant to shock the audience and grab their attention. And just like the people of Judah, people today, we can feel sorry for ourselves and we can expect God to only give us good news as if we deserve a break. We deserve a break from all that's going on in our lives. I don't want to come and hear a message about judgment. That's how we can think. But God says, no, you need to understand that you are not yet getting what you truly deserve. If you were, it would be a complete and catastrophic judgment similar to Noah's flood where everything is swept away that's the message we need to hear from this opening line we don't think about sin and judgment properly or enough now verses 2 through 4 
where God says, I'm going to undo this work of creation, highlight the fact that God's judgment is universal in scope. And we should know briefly before moving on from this section, three things about sin in light of these verses. Number one, sin is not a small thing. It is not a trifle that people would rebel against God's commands. The pain and suffering we have experienced up to this point in our lives, wherever you're at in your life, is not commensurate with the heinousness of sin. Even the person who's had the most miserable life on earth, that is not commensurate with the heinousness of their sin and the judgment that they deserve. God is taking it easy on humanity at this point. But our sin is so serious that one day God will ultimately bring universal judgment. So God's message here that he will he will judge all tells us that sin is not a small thing. God's reaction to sin shows us that sin is not a small thing. Number two, God hates sin. Note from this that God is not ambivalent towards sin and evil, but he will zealously destroy evil and sweep away the lives of evildoers who don't seek the Lord. And number three, the final day of judgment will deal with all sin. This prophecy here finds its ultimate fulfillment at the end of history, when Jesus returns and all sin will be dealt with. There will only be one hiding place on that day, the Lord Jesus Christ. So sin is not a small thing. God hates sin, and sin will be dealt with on the final day of judgment. Well, he goes on in verse 4, and we'll see here that not only is judgment coming on the whole world, but specifically within that world, it's coming on God's people. Verse 4a, the first part here, he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So after his sweeping statement about judgment on all the earth, Zephaniah zooms in on the people of God. These were those who had been called to represent the one true God to the nations. They were called God's people. It is almost as if Zephaniah had to make sure his listeners understood what he was saying. It was their tendency, as the people of God, people of Judah, to hear the part about God's judgment on the world and somehow find a way to deflect that message off of themselves. They could say, surely God is speaking about the pagans and about those who do not know who God is. Surely he's not speaking about his people. Again, we can do the same thing today. We can hear a message about sin and judgment and readily agree and say, yes, God will judge sin. God will judge those evildoers. God will judge the Hitlers and the Stalins and whoever. He'll judge those really bad people. But he's not talking about me. I'm not that bad. When I hear a message of God's judgment, I'm going to deflect it off myself. That's a human tendency. Even if we recognize the general validity of a statement, we try to accept ourselves from that statement if it puts us in an uncomfortable position. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love. So many people say, well, yeah, I'm pretty good. God's judgment may be coming, but I'm not in that group who will be judged. This tendency to accept ourselves when we're put in an uncomfortable situation can be seen in another area of life. I remember reading about a survey of parents who had their kids in the government school system, in the public school. And if I remember correctly, the survey found that the majority of parents thought that the majority of government schools were not good choices. 
they had poor education, poor learning environment, and bad influences for children. So most parents said, yeah, most of the government schools out there are not good. But yet when you ask these same parents, well, what about the school that your child goes to? The majority of parents thought that their school wasn't one of those bad schools. So the numbers just don't add up. If they say, hey, most schools are bad, but then all these same people are saying, yeah, but my kids aren't in that that school, something is not connecting here. And the same applies in the spiritual realm. The majority of people will proclaim their own goodness, even if most of these people will acknowledge that God will judge sin and God will judge sinners. There's a disconnect. And Zephaniah here says to the people of God who were prone to do that, no, you are not exempt from this judgment simply because you claim to be God's people. And you can imagine his audience listening to the first part of God will judge the earth and God will bring judgment. And they say, yes, God will, will cut off these pagan nations. God will judge the wicked. And then the prophet says what? I will stretch out my hand against Judah. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. You are not exempt from God's judgment simply because you come from an ethnic background, because you go to church, because your family is religious. God will judge all people. And there's only one escape from his judgment, faith in the Messiah, faith in Jesus. He goes on here and he lists these three specific sins beginning at the end of verse four. We're going to look at these three specific sins that Zephaniah denounces in this opening salvo of his prophecy. We'll see that God's judgment is coming because of these three specific sins. Number one, idolatry. Number two, syncretism. And number three, religious indifference. So first, Idolatry and syncretism are related. So let's give a definition for each of these. Idolatry is the worship of idols, images, or anything made by hands, or which is not God. So in other words, idolatry is putting anything in the place of the one true God. In Zephaniah's day, it might have been the pagan god Baal or or Molech. In our day, it can still be false gods, like the god or gods of Buddhism or Mormonism or Islam or Jehovah's Witness theology, these gods are not the true God. To worship them is to commit idolatry. Whether there is a statue or image involved or not, it is to worship a false god and to give your loyalty to a god that is not real. Syncretism, on the other hand, is the assimilation of one religion's beliefs and practices into another. This is where you mix and match parts of religions. And you've probably heard of the, heard this when you hear people say things like, well, I like aspects of Christianity, but I also like aspects of Eastern mysticism. So I'm going to take a little bit of each. That's syncretism. But first, let's focus on idolatry. Verse 4, the second half. He says, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roof to the host of the heavens. Now, Baal was the title commonly given to the Canaanite storm god Hadad. The people of Israel were prone to worship this false god. In the book of Judges, we read how even Gideon's own father had an altar for Baal. Idolatry is so evil because it enslaves people to a false religion. It offers no hope. God is utterly opposed to idolatry of all forms. God demands that people only worship him because he's the only true God. 
and the only one that can truly offer hope to anyone. Idolatry is a great sin that leads many people into so many other sins because it is an abandoning of the one true God. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. In other words, we tend to create gods in our own image that will suit our own passions and desires. You may hear people say things like, well, I don't like this about the God of the Bible. I don't believe in in that God. My God would never judge this sin. My God would never tell me how to live my life. My God would never tell me who I can or can't love. And yes, that is true. Your God would never say something like that because your God is not real. If you reject the God of the Bible, the God that you create in your mind is an idol. That is idolatry, and God brings his judgment against it. Next, he brings his judgment against syncretism. Look at the second part of verse 5, where it says, Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Judgment also came due to syncretism. Now, syncretism, as we mentioned, is the mixing of elements of the true service of God with false religion. It is claiming to follow God, and outwardly maybe follow some of God's commands, but then mix pagan elements with that. The people of Judah did this by bowing down and and serving, swearing to the Lord, but yet also swearing by Milcom. Now, Milcom here in verse 5 may be another name for Molech, and worshiping Molech was associated with child sacrifice. The children in these services, in these offerings to Molech, would be burned with fire. They would be burned with fire. And the people were mixing the true worship of God with the worship of these false gods. What basically was happening is God had given his law. He had given his commandments and said, this is the path to obedience. This is the path to blessing. Walk in my commandments and you will be blessed. And you have these false systems of religion saying, hey, if you want to be blessed, if you want your crops to grow, if you want your you want to have children, you want your family blessed, and you want to be financially secure and prosperous, this is the way to achieve those things. Maybe offer this sacrifice to the false god. Maybe give this to a false god. Ultimately, the most heinous was offering your children up to Molech. And so they were mixing these things, saying, yeah, we want to worship the true god, but we don't know if we really believe that following his ways are going to bring us blessings. So we're going to mix that with a little bit of these pagan religions. But we do not have the right to take a little bit from here and a little bit from there when it comes to serving God and following his commands. We do not have that right. God is opposed to syncretism and his judgment comes because of it. Now what about today? How does syncretism manifest itself today? There's many ways, and let me briefly mention four here. And the main way, the overarching way, is mixing elements of other religions with Christianity. And this is very prevalent, as we mentioned. The danger of other systems of religion, specifically those of the mystic type, has been a threat to the church for generations. Early Christians in the first century had to fight against these false systems of religion being brought in. There were cults, there was Gnosticism, there was all these systems that took elements of Christianity and mixed it with error. 
And the thing with these false systems was usually they're not coming out straightway and saying, hey, Christianity is wrong. We're denying all this stuff. They would come and mix a little error with the true message of Jesus. They would mix a little bit of falsehood with the truth. And the apostles, and the apostle John, read First John, they had to oppose the syncretism. They had to oppose the mixing of error with the truth. That's one way that syncretism manifests itself today is mixing these elements, these other religions with Christianity. Another way is in modern Molech worship. People claim to be Christians. They go to church. Of course, they're not born again. They're not regenerate because they'll accept the pagan religion of abortion. And they'll say, well, I like this about Christianity. I like a God who's forgiving and loving, but I want to keep my view that abortion is okay with that and mix them together. That's what the people of Judah were doing. Swearing by the Lord and then swearing by Molech. Okay, I want the Lord to bless me, but I'm also going to swear by this other god, by Milcom, by Molech, by these other pagan gods, because I want the blessings that they'll give me too. So I'll I'll say that I'm a Christian, I'll say that I believe in God, and I want to get those blessings from God, but I'll also seek to get the blessing from the false god of abortion being rid of a child so that I can enjoy the blessings, quote-unquote, of a life without that burden. This is sinful. Number three, mixing of modern psychology with biblical Christianity, which, of course, whenever you mix error with the truth, the truth becomes void because you've you've attacked a critical part of it. So modern psychology says, well, you, you know, you're innocent. You're not guilty of sin. You shouldn't feel guilty about anything. You try to mix that with Christianity, you lose Christianity. There can be no mixing of, of error with the truth. Also, embracing worldly values with Christianity, whether it's the view of work, children, the role of men or women, the, the view of marriage. You can't take those things from the world, what the world thinks about marriage, what the world thinks about children, what the world thinks about gender, and bring them in and try to mix them with Christianity. It does not work. It is syncretism. Anytime anything is mixed with true biblical doctrine, the truth is distorted and it is no longer true. And God hates these false systems of religion and the fact that they are brought in to the true, to the church and sought to be presented as the truth. It is damnable and it is destructive and God brings his judgment because of it. Do we view these false systems of thoughts with the same uh, hatred that God does because they destroy people's lives They pervert their understanding of true Christianity and they lead them into more and more sin. So finally, in verse 6, we've seen that God brings his judgment because of idolatry. He brings his judgment because of syncretism. And in verse 6, he brings his judgment because of religious indifference. And actually, you'll see this theme again in verse 12 if you look ahead in chapter 1, where he says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. These people really don't care. Look at verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. They are religiously indifferent. They no longer are even trying to present any sort of uh, uh, commitment or faithfulness to God. But being neutral is not an option when it comes to the Lord. You cannot be indifferent to the Lord. If you are, you're actually opposed to him because he demands your complete 
obedience and commitment. Now, how many people, from Zephaniah's day all the way up to today, how many people go through their lives without seeking the Lord or inquiring of Him for direction? And how do we find direction from God? From His Word. So there are people, of course, that will say, Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Yes, I I believe in Jesus. But in reality, Jesus is not the Lord of their life. In reality, they are not seeking the Lord or inquiring of Him. Because if Jesus is the Lord of your life, if you are truly a Christian, then Jesus will exercise His Lordship in your life by giving you direction and orders. And how does He do that? Where do those orders come from? They come from His Word. So if you are not getting your direction, if you're not inquiring of the Lord through His Word, then you are not following Him. You are not a believer. You do not believe in Jesus. He is not your Lord. Because if He is your Lord, He will give you marching orders through His Word. I know I spent many years doing just that, not inquiring of the Lord. Even though I claim to be a Christian, the Word of the Lord did not give me any direction in my life because of my sin. It was there for me, but I did not inquire of it. I ignored it. I was indifferent to it. I did not inquire of the Lord's word how I should conduct my affairs. And God brings judgment on the religiously indifferent because it is not a neutral thing. It is someone rejecting the Lord of the universe who made them and created them. And how much worse if we claim to be Christians and don't inquire of the Lord's word for how we are to live. God will bring judgment on that. We say, well, I'm not an idolater. I'm not mixing other religions. But if you are not walking in God's word, if you're not seeking the Lord and how to live your life, God's judgment will fall squarely on you, even if you claim to be a Christian. Now, in conclusion, the message of this whole book of Zephaniah is one of the most amazing and hopeful in all of Scripture. It has an amazing message. You might not expect that from the first six verses here. But when we reach the end of this book, which we will, Lord willing, we'll see one of the most beautiful and moving pictures of God in all of Scripture. Look at, if you want to, verse uh, chapter 3, verse 17, near the very end of this book, where Zephaniah says that God will sing with joy about his love for his people. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. The Lord your God in your midst is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. With loud singing. People love to hear about that aspect of God. I love to hear about that aspect of God. It is an amazing reality. The love and joy that God has over his people whom he has redeemed. But this is the same God The same God here who loves his people with unremitting love is the same God that brings judgment on all the earth. God is both a God of justice and a God of love. And his love is only fully experienced by those who understand that his judgment falls upon them unless they repent. Unless they see their sin, they will never seek the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 3. When Jesus came... Of course, all that the prophets wrote pointed to Jesus. When Jesus came, he said he came to call sinners, not the righteous, not those who don't think the judgment falls on them, but sinners who realize that Zephaniah's judgment of the Lord, that Zephaniah speaks of, the judgment of the Lord, it falls on them apart from Christ. He came to call those who understand that this judgment Zephaniah spoke of rightly falls on them. 
And so if you are a Christian this morning, if you do believe in the Lord Jesus, you can learn from this the seriousness with which you should take uh, when it comes to battling sin, battling the sin of idolatry, of syncretism. Don't let anything come into biblical Christianity. Guard biblical Christianity. Guard it. The church needs to guard the doctrine of God because if you start mixing error with it, you lose the truth. And we should battle the sin of religious indifference. God hates these things. If you are God's child, you will hate them too. And if you are not yet a Christian this morning, learn from this that God will judge sin. The messages you hear all around you in the world are not necessarily the messages you need to hear. They're messages of simply shallow love, shallow hope, shallow good news. They don't truly offer you a solution to the problem that is your own sin. Every now and then, you get a Zephaniah in your life to stir you up to realize the danger that you are in as a lost sinner. And if you have been indecisive, even at a young age, as to whether or not you want to follow the Lord, may the message of Zephaniah wake you up. May it shake you and startle you to realizing that God's judgment is real and it is coming. And your only hope, as we will see in our next section here, is to seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. We can say with confidence that you can find forgiveness and freedom. You can be delivered from this judgment by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Zephaniah preached about before Jesus came on earth as in the incarnation, he warned of God's judgment and pointed forward to that Messiah who would come to hide people on the day of the Lord from God's judgment. So let us consider his message and turn to the Lord for salvation. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Zephaniah's message. We thank you that you have allowed us to hear this message of judgment. It is a loving thing to preach about judgment because it warns us of the danger that we are in apart from Christ. Thank you that you are a loving God who loves your people and who warns all the earth to turn from sin and find shelter in Christ. Help us to love you and serve you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.